0: I'm looking at a painting from 1943. You've seen this painting too, in all likelihood. Maybe not in the Saturday Evening Post when it was originally published, but maybe reproduced in a coffee table book or magazine, or framed and hung on a wall, or here and there on social media, or even in the many parody and satire versions that have appeared over the years. The artist is Norman Rockwell, and the painting depicts a family around a dinner table as a holiday feast is getting started. The painting belongs to a series of four that Rockwell created to depict the four freedoms promoted by President Roosevelt. Freedom of worship, freedom from fear, freedom of speech, and, the subject and title of this painting, freedom from want. Whatever its political or patriotic origins, the painting has gone on to become an iconic representation for Americans of holiday dinners. At the very center of the painting is a large stuffed turkey on a silver platter large enough to feed the 11 people we see seated around the table, with leftovers. We're watching the family matriarch place the turkey onto the table, which is also set with a bowl of fruit, celery, pickles, cranberry sauce, and a covered dish which, if we had to guess, would probably contain potatoes or a casserole of some kind. This is the traditional Christmas dinner. A turkey and stuffing, potatoes or squash, and green beans or Brussels sprouts gravy and bread and cranberry sauce, and some kind of fruit pie for dessert. And that's the way it's been for nearly 200 years. But why? The story of how we got here is one of ancient winter feasting, agricultural societies, socioeconomics, religion, a pig that's technically a fish, and turkeys on stagecoaches. I'm Brian Earle. This is Christmas Past. Wintertime celebrations and feasting didn't begin with Christmas, of course.
1: There has always been various forms of winter festival.
0: That's Judith Flanders. She's a historian and the author of Christmas, a biography.
1: And to a greater or lesser extent, they often revolve around food and drink. If you live in an agricultural world, a pre-industrial world. The winter season is the slow season. There's not much to do. It's a slow time of year for all forms of agriculture. So the people had time to enjoy themselves. Furthermore, it is the time of year, of course, that comes after the harvest. So you have a stockpile of food. It comes after beer making or wine making. It comes after the period of slaughter. You've therefore got your essentials. You've got food, you've got drink, and you've got time to enjoy them both.
0: Some of these early celebrations, like Yule or Saturnalia, also gave us some of the traditions we practice as part of Christmas now, like burning a Yule log or decorating with evergreen foliage. But those traditions, along with the notion of a feast, would take centuries to become associated with Christmas and still more centuries to become popular and widespread. And that's because for the majority of its history, Christmas itself was not a major cultural celebration, or even a major religious one for that matter.
1: Really for thousands of years after the arrival of Christianity, Christmas is barely celebrated. At best, it's a day of minor marking. It doesn't become important outside of the church for a really long period of time, well into the 18th century. It just doesn't matter to most people.
0: And the first descriptions of a wintertime feast in December specifically is only slightly older than that.
1: By the 16th century, an English poet, Thomas Tusser, was writing about the seasonal cheer, as he called it, what one could expect in December at a feast good bread and good drink, brawn pudding and sauce, and good mustard withal, beef, mutton and pork, shred pies of the best, pig, veal, goose and capon, and turkey well-dressed, cheese, apples and nuts.
0: Once the idea of feasting and Christmas merge, we can follow its relatively short-lived evolution up to what we know today. One of the things that influenced it, unsurprisingly, was religion but maybe not in the way you think. Nowadays, the period leading up to Christmas is what we consider the Christmas season, marked by celebrating and indulgence. But historically, that period was observed as the Advent season, which is marked by restraint, such as eating fish instead of things like fowl, pork, and beef. But we just heard about that 16th-century poet describing brawn as part of December feasts. For the uninitiated, brawn is either wild boar or a pig's head boiled in vinegar broth, and then shredded and pressed into a mold, like pâté, and served with mustard.
1: Somehow, we don't quite know how, brawn did not get qualified as meat. It got qualified as fish, despite the fact that it's pork.
0: So thanks to this loophole, brawn was acceptable for fasting days, and it became associated with Advent and Christmas meals. It dominated for centuries. Now I, for one, am glad that we've largely moved away from that. But how did that happen? It has a lot to do with economics, social class, and infant mortality rates.
1: If you were rich, roast beef was the absolute luxury of the Christmas meal. For those who were less wealthy, goose was always the go-to bird. The turkey became popular in Britain in the late 18th and early 19th centuries. The reason they became popular was the very large 18th and early 19th century families, as infant mortality dropped, you had these Victorian families with half a dozen or more children. So the size of the turkey meant that when you had all your children and possibly their spouses and their children all gathered around the table, you wanted a really big dish.
0: So the turkey was mostly about having something large enough to feed those growing Victorian families. And it's maintained its dominant position at the Christmas dinner table ever since. Which in itself is impressive given that in Victorian times, there was also a large-scale migration of people from rural areas to the cities. So getting a turkey on the table, if you were a city dweller, took some doing.
1: Throughout the 18th and well into the 19th century, there was also a tradition in Britain that People who lived in the country would send to their city friends as a present, a bird of some sort at Christmas. The standard way of sending things before the railroads was to send it on the stagecoach. There are engravings of the coaches coming from Norfolk, which is in East Anglia, which was an area that particularly bred turkeys. And you just see all of these dead bird carcasses hanging down from the sides of the stagecoach.
0: Now, given how much the Christmas meal has evolved over the centuries, and given all the factors that influenced it, and given how much Christmas itself has evolved and continues to do, isn't it a little odd that Christmas dinner is basically stuck in the 19th century?
1: A British Christmas dinner of turkey, Brussels sprouts, carrots, potatoes. First of all, it's it's an entirely seasonal dinner. The British Christmas dinner, oddly, has remained fairly firmly fixed as a prosperous upper middle class dinner of the 19th century.
0: And also helping to cement that idea was the newly burgeoning print media. It's common these days to see magazines offering tips for the perfect Christmas dinner out on the shelves starting sometime in the fall. That goes back well over a century, albeit for different reasons.
1: It's because in the 19th century, the upper prosperous upper-middle-class people who ate this way would have had servants in the kitchen, would have had people to organize these many fiddly component parts, all of which have separate timings, that we no longer eat like that.
0: So here we are today, in a modern world where options abound year-round through an affordable global food supply the idea of a harvest seasonal meal tailored to a large Victorian middle-class family really just doesn't make sense anymore. The American Christmas dinner has evolved slightly from its British predecessor, but mostly by omission. Things like plum pudding and mince pie and the like never quite caught on over here, though they remain popular in England.
1: My rather cynical non-historical suspicion is the reason they didn't travel. Is They're horrible. The precursor... To plum pudding was something called plum porridge. It was a soup made with meat, thickened with breadcrumbs, and with dried fruit. Certainly one visitor to Britain in the 18th century said very firmly, if you aren't English, you won't like it. The other thing that is traditional in Britain that I understand doesn't travel much, is mince pies. Now these in the 16th century were called shred pies. They were originally made with meat. Once sugar becomes much cheaper, the meat drops out of this meal and it is simply a a dried fruit pie. You find them in Britain all the time in the shops from about the 1st of December and I would rather poke my eye out with a stick than eat one. I suspect it's something you have to grow up on.
0: Now, whatever you're looking forward to eating this Christmas, that dinner will, of course, come after the big event that happens on Christmas Day, a visit from St. Nicholas. But what happens when Santa gets caught up in a merry mix-up? Let's ask Kurt in Missouri. This is my Christmas past memory. I was about three years old. It was Christmas Eve, it was at our house, and uh, my mom heard the doorbell ring. And she went to the doorbell, looked outside, and there was Santa Claus on the front doorstep. She grabbed me, yelled for my dad. My dad got his camera. She opened the door, there was Santa Claus with a big bag of presents. He did the ho, ho, ho. He came in the house, my mom was so excited. The reality of the fact was is that it was Christmas Eve. There was Santa, it was my mom, but the Santa Claus had come to the wrong door. He had been hired by someone to come into one of the houses in the neighborhood. He came to the wrong door. My mom got him inside the house, wouldn't let him go. You know, gave him cookies, gave him milk, had him take a picture with my dad. He didn't realize he was in the wrong house until he was there about 15 minutes. And the look on his face must have been priceless. But that was uh, my Christmas memory, circa 1960. I want to hear your Christmas memories, whether they're funny, sweet, bittersweet, or just plain Christmassy. All you have to do is record a voice memo into your phone and send it to christmaspasspodcast at gmail.com. Christmas Past is produced in sunny San Mateo, California, by yours truly, Brian Earle. Thanks to Judith Flanders and Kurt in Missouri, and thank you for listening. Don't forget to subscribe to the show so you don't miss any of the fun that's in store for this season. And if you're feeling the Christmas spirit, why not help more people find the show by telling a friend about it, or leaving a review on Apple Podcasts? If you do leave a review, I'll send you a sticker to say thanks. Contact me for details. Again, you can write to ChristmasPasspodcast at gmail.com or find me on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll see you again in just a few days.